Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. We lost the final by four runs, and it's probably the most disappointing outcome I've experienced in in a cricket sense. But it was the right outcome because we just did not we didn't get it right. Um, we might as well have lost by four hundred runs. Um, it just it wouldn't it, it would have been fantastic, but it just we didn't we didn't gel. And it wasn't it wasn't any bickering. There wasn't any major issues in the team, but it was an undercurrent of individual before team. And I I should have stamped on that earlier than I did. So that's that's probably my lesson that I've taken from that. Uh, through life is to just not let things fester. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we are in the company of cricketing royalty. This person dominated world cricket for one and a half decades, and in the process, broke just about every record that there was to break during that time. And to add to this, there were two World Cup victories as captain, just to add a pretty big cherry on top. In 2011, this person was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame and in 2014 was inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Belinda Clark, this truly is an honour to have you on my show. Thanks, Shane. It's great to be here. Belinda burst onto the Australian cricket scene as a 20-year-old with 100 on debut in a first test match and from the very beginning had an insatiable appetite for scoring runs. Belinda scored 919 runs in her 15 test matches at an awesome average of nearly 46. And in her 118 one-day internationals, she scored nearly 4,900 runs, an amazing average of 47.5. Honestly, it would take me hours to read through all of the Belinda's phenomenal record-breaking achievements, but there are a couple that really stand out to me that I'm going to mention. The first one is that Belinda captained the Australian side to two World Cup wins in 1997 and 2005, with the Aussie team going through the 2005 campaign undefeated. As well as this, Blinda has the Australian record for most World Cup runs. Blinda, you were a pioneer in so many ways throughout the cricketing world, and you really set a benchmark of what was possible. In 1997, you were the first cricketer, male or female, to score a double century in one-day cricket. You scored 229 not out against Denmark in a World Cup match. Honestly, how in the world did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the weird thing is I actually didn't hit them very well for the first half. Um, And I reckon I uh, I ran most of them. So there there wasn't too many boundaries in the first bit. But, uh, yeah, I just tried to bat bat the innings out. But uh, I I wouldn't say they were... um, cricketing um, giants Denmark so they're on the on the wrong end of the um of the punishment that day yeah but still to be able to score that many runs no one had ever come like no one had got over 200 that's a lot of runs doesn't matter what bowling you're facing that's a crazy amount of runs and to think that that's actually that was possible gosh when did it get to a point when did it get to a point where you were like okay what is really going on here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I'd set myself the um, the objective of batting the fifty overs. That's that's all I was trying to do. So okay. I was. Um, Mel Jones tells a story that she was out in the middle and I got two hundred, and I was just like, "Yep, yeah, okay, keep going." Because in, in my mind, I was after the fifty over. I was just trying to get some time in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, yeah, it was a it was a big day, and I I, I didn't realise the um, the feet really until I came off, and the Indian press just went mad. So um, it wasn't until I got off the field that I realised um, that it was a pretty special. Day. And to be able to, in, it's it's very powerful to see what you said there around. You had the pro, the thought in your mind about just getting to the fifty overs, like just batting out the fifty overs. But to be able to stay in the process and not really worry as much about your runs until the fifty overs are over, and you go, "Wow, okay, this has never been done before. That's pretty cool." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, you, you know what it's like, but to um, you know to get into that mindset where you're actually not worried about the outcome is um it's it's rare you talk a lot about it but you don't actually get there and that day um I was seriously just focused on batting um the 50 overs so 
um, anything else that came with it was a bonus. So cool. During your career, you achieved so many phenomenal things on the cricket field that hadn't been done before. So looking back now, is there one highlight of your career that, that really stands out? Aside from, apart from the 229 not out. <laughs> uh, around, around the same time, um, that World Cup final that we played uh, at Eden Gardens in Calcutta for that tournament, uh, 97, we played in front of um, 80 odd thousand people. Wow. And um, for us, I mean, that was just, we're going from, you know, mums and dads watching and very small crowds to a, a full, well, it was three quarters full, it was a big stadium, but mm. just to, um, to go from nothing to that was uh, was phenomenal. So that whole tournament was uh, most, I think about 90% of the team hadn't been to India before and we traversed the country. I think I've been to every town in India in, in that sort of three-week period. We had Christmas in India. Um, right. It was just the most phenomenal, eye-opening experience and to top it off to have a game like that at the end with that many people watching, it's just, I, I look at the pictures now and I can't believe that actually happened. It was um, It was just awesome. It's so cool. The, like, obviously, the World Cup, um, the T Twenty Women's World Cup at the MCG. Everyone talks about the you know the incredible crowd that was there. But the one thing that gets passed by is is <laughs> in ninety seven, eighty thousand people eating gardens. Like, I actually, I, I that wasn't in the you know, I wasn't told about that really at the time. Um, so that's phenomenal. <laughs> that yeah. um, that back then as well, you know, the love of cricket across across the world, male or female. Um, you know, to see to see how things have continu- continued to evolve. Yeah, and look, it was a moment in time. Um, the um, they bust most of those people in to watch the game, um, and the the story goes that the sports minister was also the transport minister, and, and it was a woman, and she bust in every kid that lived anywhere near Calcutta for the day. And the pitch of the crowd was this high level, like it was kids and women basically um, mm. trying to you know encourage women to be empowered and. Um, and the noise was like this is like this ee, all day, and you go into a stadium in Australia, it's like you can you can hear. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, my God, who is in this crowd? <laughs> um, and uh, they forgot to replace the buses for the workers that they used to bring the kids in. So um, all the workers in Calcutta were standing on the street corners waiting for their buses to get to work that day, and they were taking the kids to the cricket. So they had a day um, off. A great, Happy days. yeah, great, great story. But um, yeah. yeah, it was just a wonderful, a wonderful occasion, and um, mm. yeah, just something that stands out as just like really like a weird event in my in my career. I'm going to move um, into the real technical side of of cricket. So was there one specific technical component with your batting that really stands out to you that you developed? So from that moment on, you knew if you did this every single time, you're a great chance of having a great day. Yeah, I always, um, I was forever fiddling with um, my grip, funnily enough. Um, so there's two things that I needed to get right. One, one was the feeling of the, the loose bottom hand. Um, and the other one was just balance, like getting my weight on my forefoot. Uh, without sort of, I had a habit of tipping over onto the offside. So I was very strong on the offside. That was where I um, it, I just found it easier to score there. So the minute I started doing that, obviously, um, you know, you come, become susceptible, uh, you know, to the straight one or the one that you're trying to whip around the corner. So if I could get my bottom hand loose and my weight at the right spot, then I knew, um, you know, that was always what I was trying to do in my warm-up and so that when I walked out, I was, I was grooved to, to have those two things in play. It's interesting you say you say that. So because from from my point of view with uh, my batting, I know if my bottom hand is is gripping on too too tight, then it means that that's controlling my bat swing, which means that yeah. it pulls it pulls my bat especially inside the line of the ball, because it, it's yeah. um, it's overriding my top my top arm and, and my um, my front side. And is that is that the reason why it was really important for you to be able to hold onto that bottom hand looser? So it was your top your um, your top hand and your your elbow your front elbow actually swinging the bat more so than your bottom hand, you know, trying to take over? Yeah, and I wasn't um, I wasn't particularly um, big or strong and I, um, you know, the bats we used were, you know, of the day. So um, you, you really needed your timing and I just found if my bottom hand was tight, I would just lose all sense of um, feel and um and timing. So I relied so much on that, that I, as soon as it was off, I had nowhere to go because I just didn't have the power to, to sort of bludgeon it anywhere else. So really mm-hmm. important for me to make sure that the bat was moving well and, um, and that I was in good positions because I needed the pace on the ball. Yeah. The other thing that you talked about is the, the weight on your, you're talking on like the balls of your feet, but not, but not tipping over to the offside, which 
it's one of the things that I <laughs> was always was always fighting and trying to work on was not um, committing to the to the offside before the ball was bowled. So, what was the technique for you to be able to do it? Was you uh, was it you, um, you know, bending your knees a little bit more, or what was the way that you found was the easiest way to make sure that you won the balls of your toes so you could move quickly, but you weren't um, committing your weight to the offside as the ball's bowled. Essentially, it was um, tapping tapping the bat and getting my head like my head so knees bent a little bit more than what feels feels sort of comfortable mm-hmm. um and then making sure my bat was uh loose and and down in my feet so i, I mean i had a quite a, a classical technique if you like mm-hmm. so the bat the bat was down um and but it was loose loosely sort of tapping and i was I, it was all about rhythm and timing and if i got those things right and i was relaxed then then things flowed for me and if i was tight or um, up to upright, that's when I would tend to tip over. Um, and, and I knew my partners all knew the same thing. And it was if I was batting with Lisa Kitely, she'd, she'd be mm. just signaling, get your head up. And so, um, you know what it's like, you play with someone for long enough and they can help you um, from the non-strikers end. And she was constantly saying, get your head, get your head back. <laughs> it was very helpful. Yeah. By seeing footage of you batting, it's very much the classical technique um, of the day, as in like what Greg Chappell and Viv Richards, the way you sort of tap your bat and um, keep your bat, kept your bat sort of lower. So then you had a full bat swing, a full flow of your bat swing. Whereas now techniques, a lot of techniques have moved more so, more so to standing up taller and having your bat up higher as the ball's bowled. Um, but the one yeah. thing with that real classical technique is you have more of a flow of the bat swing because you're picking the bat up from, from um, the ground, which means that you've got a bit more rhythm and um, I suppose flow of your bat compared to like <laughs> mine is now um, and has, has been, it's more holding it up higher and it's not as, you know, it's, it's not much, as much as a flow compared to, you know, what it was, um, you know, with the, the greats that played um, around your era. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we learn by um, watching um, and that's how humans learn. No one tells you how to walk. They don't say, you know, lift up your right leg and put your right heel down. You you learn by mimicking what you see around you. So um, the way I played tennis was pretty much like the era of people that I was watching as I was growing up and the same with with, um, cricket. So what you're seeing on the television and um, is very informative um, and it's not till you see yourself on video that you realise, you know, what it is that you've been watching and copying um, and I think today's today's um, kids are just seeing a greater variety of techniques because of the formats of the game have driven the changes. Um, you know, there's no there's no right or wrong. Um, it's just a, you know solving the problem in front of you. So I think um, I, I think I'm a big believer in um, you know watching you know monkey see monkey do. Um, that's essentially how how we learn as a starting point. Um, and and I was probably just one of those kids watching World Series cricket, um, and that's what I that's what I got served up. It's fascinating you say that about um, how like mimicking what you see, and I've seen that with my son Will, um, with his his evolution even over the last sort of eighteen months of of cricket. It's not because of what he's doing in the house or in the backyard. It's as soon as he started watching cricket, which has been the last sort of eighteen months. He's just picked up. He's picked up things and shots that are, like you can't coach that because yeah. it's it's just it's what he's seen and then he's just mimicking it and it's incredible yeah. the powerful as you said like that's how do people know how to walk they see people doing it so they just you don't think about it just you just it's what you do so it's fascinating that that's actually the best way to be able to learn yeah and the, the explosion of the internet and YouTube um, kids have just exposure to so many things so they they search and they find things and they mimic and. Um, I think they're best probably left learning that way. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) Well said. To be able to do what you did on the cricket field, you must have been incredibly fit. So if you're starting your career over again from a fitness perspective, would you have done anything differently? Uh, I probably would have... um uh, I probably would have focused on some strength work and core work more than I did. Um, it wasn't that it wasn't given to me. I, I got it. I just didn't enjoy the gym like I enjoyed um, being outside and, and running. So I ran and I swim and swam and I rode and I would do a lot of the endurance piece and I was reasonably quick um, naturally. So that allowed me then just to work on the endurance and I um since when I finished playing, I ran a couple of marathons. I just love endurance events. Um, I love watching them. Um, I, I, like I just love them. I'm actually not geared or made to do it, but um, but I've done a few of them, and it's been 
uh, been good. But I, if I had my time again, I would have focused more on um, probably the core core work. I've got a, a bit of a dodgy back now, um, probably a consequence of standing over a bat and um, being in a flex position for too long and now spending too much time sitting in a chair. But um, I, I would have done more more gym and more um, core work, I think. Did you always manage your body well or did you have setbacks um, throughout your career that you had to learn from to be able to you know, stay stay on the field stay and stay playing? Uh, I was pretty good. I don't think I missed. Uh, I don't think I missed many games due to injury. Um, a disc problem in my back, maybe a state game here or there. I don't think I missed any national games with with injury. But illness, probably the major thing that happened is I got um, I got sick with glandular fever the year I moved out of home. So I moved to Sydney um, to to study, and uh, just was trying to do too much. Ended up getting um, glandular fever, and I missed I missed a cricket tournament uh, when in the under twenty ones that we were playing at that point. And that missing that tournament was probably the the catalyst of what then allowed me to realise that I actually wanted to do this and I wanted to do it well. So having something taken away from me was um, was a very strong motivator beyond that point. So that happened when I was 20, uh, 19, first year out of, out of um, school. And then from that point on, I played, I played for New South Wales and Australia the next year, um, change in attitude, yeah. It's amazing that that's it. And we'll talk about this a little bit more as well, moving um, um, later on, but it's amazing how certain things happen in your life the setbacks that happen are incredible learning experiences to go, you know what, I didn't really like that that happened and what it what it meant is not playing cricket or not being able to be on the field. So, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I have to to be able to learn from that to limit the chance of that happening again. Yeah, and it's easy to see how people can float float through things. I mean, I I hadn't really had to struggle too much for, um, you know, to be picked in teams or to, to score runs. I mean, everything was quite... Um, reasonably natural and just fall, you know unfolding in front of me I wasn't I wasn't forcing anything but it was all just happening for me and I, I don't think I appreciated that that's actually what was going on until um it sort of got cut off mm. um and at that point it was like hmm actually um I don't like staying at home when all my mates you know flew to Perth and went to a tournament and I and I missed out um yeah. and so I made the most of every opportunity from that point forward it's a great way of looking at things it's one thing that through all the injuries that I had the one thing that it definitely made me realize is every single time is how much I loved playing and how much I loved training. And I just wanted to get yeah. back out there. Um, and when it's taken away from you, which happened <laughs> fairly consistently at times, it just continues to that, to, to fuel that um, love and desire to be able to get out there and, um, and not take it for granted. Yeah. And I think the, the mental attitude that you take into those, um, you know, training sessions or it, it's not until you actually work out that that's the mental attitude's more important than the physical that, um, that you, you start to make some, to, some big strides forward. That is for sure. Belinda, you captained Australia in 112 matches across all three formats. So from a leadership perspective, was there one major situation that really stands out in your mind that you really learned from where you didn't get the desired effect that you're looking for? Yeah, probably um, the World Cup in 2000. So we'd won in 97 and we went on to win in 2005. But in 2000, we had a so 97, very young team experiencing India for the first time. It was like one big adventure to New Zealand the following year. We've been there a lot. The team's now four years older. A few older players have come back in. And we didn't, we just were off the mark. The individuals were a bit more important than the team and people worried about whether I was, you know, who was getting the runs and who was getting recognised and it's been niggly over team selection and all sorts of stuff. And I, as a as a leader at that point, um, my one regret is that I didn't get all over that earlier. And as a result, we, we lost the final by four runs and it's probably the most disappointing outcome I've experienced in in a cricket sense, but it was the right outcome because we just did not we didn't get it right. Um, we might as well have lost by four hundred runs. Um, it just it wouldn't it, it would have been fantastic, but it just we didn't we didn't gel. And it wasn't it wasn't any bickering. There wasn't any major issues in the team, but it was an undercurrent of individual before team. And I I should have stamped on that earlier than I did. So that's that's probably my lesson that I've taken from that. Uh, through life is to just not let things fester. So if you had your time again, what what would you, would you have done differently at what stage to be able just to pull things into a bit more alignment? Yeah, I think um, probably midway through the tournament, um, I should have been having more one-on-one conversations with people to understand what it was that they were 
experiencing. So I think, I mean, I wasn't playing that well myself. I think that probably had a bit of an impact. I, I played well in the final and um, that's because um, it was, the proverbial was hitting the fan. I think I just forgot about everything that it just, you know, focus bang straight onto the ball. Um, but, yeah, I think halfway through the tournament I, I should have taken more uh, of an individual approach rather than trying to deal with issues as a group or in team meetings. I should have got in earlier and done that. But um, it's a classic example of, you know, we had a break halfway through the tournament and everyone went their own ways. And, you know, when you're in a team and everyone goes their own ways and you sort of think, oh, this is great, get some time on my own, and then you think, oh, we should actually be wanting to spend time together. So it was little <laughs> little things like that that I just thought, oh, didn't quite. And I, and I was in it. I was sort of like in my own form issues. I was so I just wasn't able to to pull out of it. And it was a it was a it was a hard lesson to learn, but it's mm. one that I learned. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what you said there is around like sometimes the outcomes can fall your way, and then it does, and it can paper over cracks. Yeah. And and sometimes looking back, you do you are glad that it happened the way it did because then it meant that things got exposed more. You wish that you sort of were able to catch it earlier to to not have to um you know get to that stage where you don't want the cracks to be papered over. But I suppose that is reality at times that if things just fall your way and everyone just goes, Oh, we won, yeah, everything's great. Well, you know what? It does it's not always the way. Sometimes you do win, but there are little things starting to appear which you can have a huge impact in on results and that moving forward as well yeah absolutely and I think um I don't know I mean I look at things quite philosophically at the end of the day um they they played better than us they were a better team than us it was against New Zealand in New Zealand and um they fully deserve the win and um you know I'm friends with or I follow social media with some of the players that played in that match and every year they celebrate that win like it's <laughs> like it was yesterday you know and I every every year I think oh that's right and um they remind me but it is a I mean it's just one of those lessons isn't it they, they were better better than us on the day and they deserve the win. To be a true pioneer in your sport by doing things that people didn't think were possible, you must have been incredibly mentally tough. So from a mental skills perspective, were you always built a certain way or did you have to develop certain mental skills that you used to bring the best version of yourself consistently? No, I had to learn some stuff. So I played mainly tennis when I was a kid um, and I was a reasonable tennis player. My family was a tennis family. Um, my sister, my older sister was a very good player and I just felt the pressure of being a tennis player, um, you know, right 10, 11, 12, 13. And if I started to lose, I would just, I would lose it. I'd be thinking like, I, I don't want to lose. This is embarrassing. Um, uh, but I didn't know how to control my emotions and the match at such such a young age. Mm. So then when I started playing other sports, cricket being one of them, hockey being the other, um, I had no expectations. I don't think anyone else had any expectations. And to be able to approach a sport like that, um, I mean, I didn't ever know there was a women's a national team um, when I started playing cricket with the boys. So that's, I mean, I had no expectations. I didn't think I was quite good enough to play for the Australian men's team. So, um, you know, I, it's just, it, it's just um, th- that, that lesson stuck with me. So from then on, whenever I got into those horrible situations where you think, she's, I don't think this is going to go my way, I just remind myself that I do this because it's fun and because I'm good at it. And if I lose, I lose and don't don't die wondering. And so I've taken that philosophy through um, and it all came from the fact that I just did not cope with expectations and pressure as a, as a young tennis player. And I probably would have been a good tennis player if I could have um, managed that. But you've got to manage it when you're very young and it's hard. It's fascinating. So was there times though through your career, career where you had to look yourself in the mirror and and just say, look, this is me at my best is not having any expectations, just really enjoying it and not putting extra pressure on the end and the outcomes. Did you, was there yeah. moments where it was, hard, it was harder to be able to do that when things weren't go, especially when things weren't going how you wanted them to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, from a national perspective, I played, I played most of my career as, as, the, as the captain as well. So um, that brings with it some, um, opportunities to get outside your own head and I found that you know the more I thought about things the worse I got um and if I was in a game situation where um where it was really tight or tough I played my best because all the other distractions whether we were going well on the scoreboard or not or who was chirping somewhere it that just went away and I focused on what I needed to do um so if I could remove the stress and remove the pressure um, all the expectations, that's when I let myself 
um, play at my best. So I had to constantly work at that because it's easy to get caught up in what other people say, what other people think, or, you know, the run rate or the whatever. And I just, as soon as I did that, I was rubbish. And you were really aware of that. Like, so you yeah, really yeah. directed your thoughts to know that if you start to move into that headspace that you just pulled yourself back into, no, that's not me at my best at all. I need to, I need to just be right in the process of exactly what I need to do right now and not be caught up in any of these other distractions. Yeah. If I, if the minute I kept looking at the scoreboard, I, that was like a, a danger sign for me because I, I, I knew that if I concentrated, I would get the run, I'd get, I would maximize the opportunities to score. And, and often I would be 10 or 20 or whatever before I'd look at the scoreboard. And because I was opening, you don't have that massive pressure at the start, particularly, I mean, this is pre power plays and pre expectations about going berserk early. I had time. And as long as I had time and take the pressure off myself, I could, I could always catch up. I could always get there. But as soon as my, my eyes started to float the scoreboard and I, my brain started calculating run rates, I, that was just like an alarm bell, stop it. <laughs> Don't worry about the scoreboard. Different when I'm fielding and captaining, mm-hmm. totally differently, different. But when I was batting, I just needed to watch the ball and, and play what was in front of me. I find that absolutely fascinating because that's in, that's, that is mental toughness is to know when you're starting to move away from the best version of you and pulling yourself back into exactly where you need to be. I wish I, knew, I wish I had those skills to be able to drag myself back into the right space, um, you know, throughout my career. It was most of the times for me is when the circumstances put me into the right headspace around me, whether it was, you know, something had happened and my back was up against the wall or I was like, you know, what, I don't, I don't care about results. One was opening the batting. I found opening the yeah. batting gave me the freedom to not care where the team was at which for me worked yeah. incredibly well because I was like, if I get out, oh, who cares? Who cares? Numbers five, six, and seven can deal with it. <laughs> whereas, when <I> was, <laughs> whereas when I was batting like three, four, five, six, wherever it was, my mindset would be dictated by where I came in and how the team was going. If we were four for not many, I'd be like, oh, I can't get out now. Oh, geez, that's not good. I had the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Opening is the best place to bat because you, you can set the tone. Mm. Um, uh, whereas I, I would have been horrible sitting waiting to bat because I would be dreaming up all sorts of stuff that could go <laughs> right or wrong. Um, so yeah. I needed to get out there and, and not. And so half half my problem was thinking way too much. Like I needed to calm down, calm the mind, and not worry about it. And the best way to do that is to be out in the middle. What I do find fascinating now is how how have have you used those mental skills into the next phase of your of your life as a sports administrator? Because that's in, that's incredible skill to be able to understand those mental skills. It, did yeah. you find it the transition into the next phase of your life from a mental skills aspect? Uh, I think there, there's yeah, there's probably two two things that cricket allowed me to um, take with me. So there's a lot of stuff you don't bring with you, all the physical skills and whatever. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, they, and that's what you spend all your time mm-hmm. on, and that becomes you know obsolete very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, working with people, um, you know, a variety of people, coaches, conditioners, physios, players, etc. That I found that was useful um, and being able to understand yourself. So what are the things that press my buttons that when this starts to happen, I need to, you know, I'm reasonably impulsive. I, my, I've got a, you know, a, a do bias. Like if something needs to be done, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll start doing it, you know, straight away before I, so I know, I know a lot more about myself now than I did when I was, um, you know, starting out in a cricket career. And, and, and that's really important. I don't think you ever finish that journey um you're constantly learning about yourself but you know I, I'm much more aware of me how I think what the impact of me on other people is how I you know when, when are you starting to judge people all that stuff that, mm. that um because you're under extreme pressure at different times you sort of get to learn that quicker than normal I think and moving into from a leadership perspective like your understanding of mental skills of what worked for you is it's incredible. And there's no secrets reason why you were as good as what you, as what you were as a cricketer alone. But were did you instill those, those mental skills and understanding into everyone that you played with? And then also as a leader in um, an organization as well, you instill those into the people that are around you as well. Well, I probably have come to understand that um, everyone's different. Um, and Uh, I've got very high expectations of myself and of the people around me and sometimes too high. Um, So I've I've probably, um, I've probably had to explain to people that, you know, this is me. If I do this, it's because 
you know, I am impatient and I'm, I'm impulsive and I want to get things done. And if you don't agree with me, we'll just have that out and then we'll move on to the next thing. And some people don't work like that and I've worked that out. Um, so I, I, um, I probably am better now to explain to people why I would be, why I, why I do things or why I think things or why I say things. And then I'll stop and say, so how do you view this situation? Um, rather than it's very easy as a skipper to get caught up in, well, what I think's right and you're just going to do what I think and that's probably where I was um, mm. 25 years ago, um, whereas now I'm much more, um, you know, what what do you think about this? How are we going to get through this? How are you, you know, what are you, what's your assumptions and beliefs going into this problem? All that sort of stuff. I'm a lot more um, circumspect, I think, um, and let people just, be their best, which is not the way I would do it. Like I, my way is my way because it works for me, but it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, so I've just got to be careful I don't project my understanding onto someone else. The one thing that I, I know is that it does work for everyone is when you unload people of their expectations. As you said, as a, as a, a young um, girl playing tennis, as soon as you moved into the other sports, the expectation totally just disappeared. And that is when yeah. in life in general, that's when you don't suffocate yourself with the burden of, of worry and, and stress about, I need to perform. Um, yeah. And that is an incredibly important thing that it, it works for, it works for everyone <laughs> is when you just take all that heat off the outcome and you just focus on what you need to do to be the best version of yourself, then that, that's, that's in the power that like you're always trying to instill in everyone around you is, yeah, you need to be, you need to work through the best version of yourself and doing things every single day but then it is unloading people of the expectation of the outcome because that just that's when stress and worry and everything sort of cranks up and that's where suffocation of, of the best version of yourself actually can occur. Yeah, and I think people just want to know that you care about them um, and that, you you know, you care more deeply than the whatever outcome is. And I think that's important from a t- in a team perspective um, because everyone's struggling with something somewhere, somehow, um, and you forget that when you're caught in your own head. So just sort of taking a step back and understanding that, you know, I've got struggles. People don't think you've got struggles. Of course you've got struggles. You've got struggles. Everyone's got struggles and it's trying to get to the bottom of helping people with that. Um, the outcomes will happen um, if you can, you know, build a really strong trust mechanism with people. When you first started playing cricket for Australia, women's cricket didn't get massive amounts of media coverage apart, well, 97 World Cup, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, but from what you know now, um, what advice would you give the girls coming through who are now some of the most recognisable athletes in Australia? Yeah, I, I, this is um, an interesting um, conundrum because I'm, um, when I was playing, I, I knew that we needed to do everything we could to get the media, media attention or we had to, you know, we had to be very nice to the journalists. We had to, you know, um, bow and scrape and thank you for covering our matches because it just was, you know, you're just competing with, um, you know, with all this male sport and people really weren't interested. So we, we went out of our way to make it easy. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I've ever felt, um, like I've got a, I'm respectful of the media, but I don't necessarily trust it um, because I understand what their job is, which is sometimes a different agenda to what, you know, what someone else, what I'm running at the time. So um, I, I would say I'm um, guarded, um, a little bit guarded. And if I was playing now, I don't know that you can afford to be too guarded because um, of social media, I think, Um but yeah, I I was respectful, but yeah, always at arm's length because I just didn't didn't know where it was going next. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the exact same boat. <laughs> I was very very guarded. Um, which yeah. in the end, if I had the time again, I would have got to know, um, had more personal connections with all the other people in the media. Um, because yeah. if you've got more of a personal connection with someone they're going to be, they can be a little bit more kinder with the wording that they, <laughs> the wording they yeah. use when they are writing an honest article on, <laughs> on where yeah. things are at with what you're doing. Um, yeah. So, but it's, it's an easy, it's an easy thing to do because yeah, you, as you said, the agenda, your agenda compared to their agenda, a lot of the time can be quite different and yeah. it's understanding what their agenda is at times to be able to then try and make it work for both, both, yeah, both ways. And now with social media, the agenda is very different. That's <laughs> from a lot of different people who just are faceless, and and that's the challenge of you know the modern day cricketer, um, you know, male and people in general. Um, 
is is the social media, which is gosh, there's a lot of harsh critics out there. And if you if you ride the waves of of good days when everyone's praising you, and then the the not so good days when people <laughs> it's the opposite. Um, you're gonna those waves are gonna be a lot a lot bigger than than what what it would be if you're actually trying to distance yourself a little bit away, especially from the social media aspect, which is gosh, very challenging in this um, in this current landscape. Yeah, and I mean, working um, working with Justin and the team uh, twelve months ago, um, um, my favourite saying at the time was, "Justin, the cheap seats are full. <laughs> the people in the grandstands taking the cheap shots, they're full. They're, they're, but there's only so many people that are sitting down here on the, on the field doing something about it. So you just cannot get distracted. Um, but there's a lot of people that played cricket when they were ten or eleven or have a view of something and. They're never going to know what it's like, and that's okay. It's not their fault, but um, you, you don't have to listen to them um, all the time. You don't have to get caught up in it. So, um, yeah, the cheap seats are full. Um, it's pretty rare to be down on the ground. So just so it's hard. It's hard to get perspective when you're under fire like that. Mm. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be. And I, I feel very lucky that I didn't have to deal with with that. I mean, the the girls deal with it now more than what we did and, and you guys deal with it all the time and I just, I, I, don't, I don't know how I would react, but I know how I would react now, but I don't know how I would have reacted as a 22 or 23-year-old. Um, yeah. I can't tell you. I, I, don't, I don't think I would have handled it well, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, in a, it's an awesome philosophy that you said there. The cheap, the cheap seats are full. The cheap I love seats it. are full. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, this is going to get into other aspects um, away from cricket now. And I know you played in an era where, the earning capacity for women is is nowhere near you know what it is today, but with the money that you have earned throughout your life so far, looking back from where you are now, would you have done anything differently from an investment and a, and a wealth generation um, point of view? Look, I um I didn't earn any money playing, so it wasn't just a little bit; it was like zero. Okay, zero. Um, <laughs> I, I, I learned I earned more running in a botany gift charity uh, hundred meter sprint than I did playing cricket, uh, which was three hundred dollars. Um, oh, so look, I. So I, I mean, I, I studied physiotherapy. I worked as a physiotherapist for 18 months um, and then I went travelling and I ended up working in cricket administration after that. And that really was my way of earning a living from the sport and, mm-hmm. and I'm still doing it now really. Mm-hmm. So um, I, what would I do differently? Um, oh, look, I probably would have, you know, the, the usual sort of you buy shares earlier, mm-hmm. um, buy property earlier, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I... I've done okay for myself. I'll, I'll probably have to work most of my life, but that's okay. I've got um, I've got a, uh, a a strong philosophy around time being super valuable and yeah. as valuable as money. So money yeah. gives you choices, mm. but time time is really critical. So I, I try and protect my time like most people would protect their money. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I I would have. Um, I probably would have um, studied something that had finances involved in it or, or got access to someone that was really clever with money earlier, I think, mm, is what yeah. I would have done. Um, but, you know, you, you grow up in a household and, you you know, you inherit your, your parents' philosophy, which was yeah. don't waste money, mm. this is a valuable resource, we'll, we'll let you go and play your sport, we'll raise the money for you. You know, so, so there's no waste, but that, that comes with um, probably less risk as well. So... Um, mm. You know, you don't have lots of money to throw around as a twenty-year-old when you're just sort of just finishing uni. Yeah, I, f- I find uh, two two aspects of that really um, really interesting. Um, one is around educating yourself a bit more um, because that's the one thing that I, I from my experience alone. Yes, my mum and dad were um, they made the most of what they had. They, you know, my dad was in the air force. Uh, my mum was just was a part time had part time jobs to be able to just look after the, look after the kids, myself and my sister. So I got that philosophy from my mum and dad, but the one thing they didn't talk to me about was around educating me on, on the financial side of things. So then when I was looking for someone to be able to help me invest, for example, in, in, in any way, I wasn't armed enough with the right questions to be able to cut through a lot of the junk that's there, the opportunists who are there to be able to try and capitalize on, on people. So, um, and that's what I, I instill for everyone is educating yourself around it enough. So then you're not just trusting someone who they know more than you, but they could be taking advantage, um, could be taking advantage as well. Well, I I remember, I I remember going and paying, um, I was with my mum, I was in um, high school at the time and and I went with her to the bank to pay off the last check of the mortgage of our family home. 
And that was through an era where interest rates were 15, yeah. 16% or something ridiculous, right? So yeah. it took them took them forever. And this was like a big momentous day. And I remember going in the bank and she went, um, bang, there, there's the last, the last check. And so I've always been very clear that, you know, the minute you get a loan, you like quit, get, get rid of it, get rid of it. So there were some financial lessons in there that were probably sound, but um, yeah, the investing and the risk taking and the you know growing wealth. Th- mm. There was no talk about that. It was all yeah. about um, you know really meat and potatoes. Get yeah. get the debt get the debt down quickly and then and then live debt free and everything will be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, same so yeah. same philosophy in my family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just good because some good lessons. But yes. um, you're not gonna you're not gonna die a millionaire. <laughs> well, I'm not. You might. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I, I'm certainly. I don't take it for granted. That's for sure. That I came along in a time in world cricket where, um, yeah, male sport and now it's females. Is I just know I'm lucky because you know the guys who played before me, even ten, fifty, if I, if I was born at a different time, things are, would be very different. So I definitely never, ever, ever take that for granted. Um, the one, the other thing that I find um fascinating is the importance of time as being the most valuable commodity. And I, that is so incredibly powerful what you said there, because you are absolutely right to be able to have control of your, of your time, because that's, that's, you've only got a certain amount of time on the planet and you want to try and make the most of that more so than you know, how much money you've got, because you can, you can have little or a lot, but that doesn't give you back time. Yeah. Yeah. And look, my, my mum passed away when I was 21. Oh, right. Um, and so, I mean, I've, I've been particularly, I've always been impatient, but with, with time, um, you know, I have a, you know, an aversion to wasting it um, and having, you know, having experienced the parent passing um, and you think, oh, um, you know, that, that's, that wasn't nice and that can just happen like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really important to, that that you do the things you want to do and you, you know, you, you'd be really clear with what you're prepared to you know, to, to, to spend your um, most valuable resource on. Mm, it's incredibly wise. Linda, you have had, have held so many vitally important roles within Cricket Australia since your playing days finished. So what is the biggest lesson that you've learned when it comes to managing these critically important areas to continue the growth of the game that we, that we all love so much? Uh, look, I think um, the thing about uh, working in sport that's really a positive is that generally speaking, people are all in it for the right reasons. So, you know, that generally speaking, people are all trying to do the right thing and um, sometimes we all get caught up in uh, either which organisation you work for or what, where are you in, you know, you're working at the national level or the local level and everyone gets caught up in that. But really what the public see or what the end user sees is just cricket. And I think the more we can deal with, with that you know the, the the stuff that happens inside the sport just deal with that as closed as you can because at the end of the day the people out in the street they really don't care whether it's Queensland cricket or New South Wales cricket or cricket Australia they don't care who's providing the service they don't care who's providing the money they just like can you just help us so I think um one of the things I'm always really conscious of is that the person at the end of the chain they don't they don't care if it's me or if it's you or if it's whatever they just want help um and I think um, I've, I've tried through every role I've had to keep that in the front of my mind to say there's people giving up their time and effort to run cricket clubs, run associations, do all sorts of really good social stuff um, and sometimes we need to get over ourselves and just, um, you know, help them. So wise. <laughs> it's, it's, it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely right. You're right. Like in the end, the the cricket lover, the cricket fan, they don't really, they don't, honestly, they don't, care what's going on inside the organization they just want it to be as well run as it possibly can they don't need to know all the inner workings or battles going on internally or whatever it is it's more so just the the outcome and people as you said the people the clubs and associations they just want help to be able to continue to you know fuel and feed the game um, and love the game of cricket that's incredibly incredibly wise which needs to be filtered through and that's just not Australian cricket that's through world cricket as well because people get caught up in themselves the internal battles that go on that get um, hung out <laughs> the dirty laundry gets hung out in the in the public domain yeah as you said no no one really cares it's just the outcome no, that people do care about most um, most importantly yeah yeah and I, I think um, 
you know, coming from, I mean, I played at a, a little club in Newcastle where I was the first girl that had played there. And I remember going to the secretary's house with with mum to pay the fees to say, you know, thank you so much for letting her play, you know, and I'm like, oh, what, is this a problem? Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. And, and that guy uh, was the father of one of my school, my, my students at school, and that same guy is still running um, the club today. And I like, wow. You know, like there's so many people that have just given so much time and you don't have to look, you don't have to go far to find them, um, but just doing amazing stuff. So that's actually why we do what we do, right? Um, yeah. And it's easy to lose sight of that when you're, um, you know, infatuated with what's around you every day and it's generally not that. It's an amazing perspective because you're absolutely right. Like at my club that I'm playing at um, and have uh, Sutherland, the Sutherland Sharks, there's one guy in particular, um, Tom Iston, who is the heartbeat of that club. If If he wasn't there giving up, crazy amounts of time like nearly every day let alone throughout the yeah. whole year that club would not function yeah it would it would nearly fall over and just yeah. about every club has got someone like that and if if the administrators aren't allowing these people to be able to continue to do what they do because they just absolutely love it that's the that they just need to be facilitated to be able to continue to give the incredible yeah. um, amounts that they give to to cricket not just that one specific club. Yeah, and it, I mean it's across all sport in Australia, but um, it is it's quite phenomenal how much how much pride we take in our sporting um, you know, prowess, and most of it's generated by people like Tom Iston or mm. Brian Friedman, or you know you can you can roll them off. Yeah. There, there's there's lots of them. Um, yeah. So it's important you keep them in in your mind as you go about your daily business. One thing that I've realised is that life is all about how well you bounce back from setbacks that, that life's always throw at you. So do you have a mantra or a saying in your life that helps you bounce back quicker from the challenges that always does come with your, come your way? Uh, I, I read a lot. I listen a lot to things and I probably flit and flirt all over some stuff. I, I recently was, um, I wrote eight life lessons for my, uh, my niece and nephews when I was on a holiday uh, on Sunshine Beach last January. Um, okay. Because um, because I wasn't spending enough time with them as I, once I'd moved to Melbourne, they're they're both they're all back in Brisbane, and so you know I think about what why did I do that? Um, but I just feel a, a strong sense of responsibility to actually do stuff or to to you know take what I've learned and actually help try and help other people with um, what with what they're doing. So I I, I think. Um, Oh, my my overarching mantra is um, if if not now when, and if not me who, and I, I just that keeps bringing me back to you know if you don't have to do something or it doesn't have to be now but you know it means that you're going to wait or someone else is going to step into the space which is fine and if you're happy for that to happen or but um, you know get really clear on what it is that you want to do and then go after it why waste time if if you're gonna if you're gonna go for it you may as well do it sooner rather than later absolutely go all in. There's no point. Yeah. There's no point just, you know, half-hearted committing. That's not, that's not good for anyone. Um, and you're yeah. not going to bring the, the whole version of yourself into what you set your mind on. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah. So, so wise. I absolutely love reading and learning as much as I possibly can. So um, can you give me a couple, a couple of the best books that you have read that have had the most impact on, on you? Okay, um, I read uh, an autobiography by Gail Kelly, oh, um, yes. who was uh, the Westpac. South African who can't, yeah, yep. yeah, Westpac, and um, the book's called Live, Lead and Learn. And I read that and I just thought, wow, here's someone who, um, different country, um, started off as a bank teller, you know, wasn't, had no ambition to be the, the head of a bank. And I just think, how the hell did you move from there to there? Um, so that, that, uh, that one sort of sticks in my mind. I'm reading a book at the moment uh, called Switch by Dan and Chip Heath, which is essentially about change, um, really interesting about big complex problems uh, can sometimes be solved by an outsider who looks at it very differently, you know, really simple simple solutions. Um, so that, that sort of resonated. Um, what else? Uh, and I think um, from a novel perspective, mm. um, there's a book called Born to Run, which is um, uh, essentially about just running. And mm. uh, I, I loved uh, anything. I, I love novels or um, books around sport. And um, 
I, I don't actually read a lot about cricket books, but I, I read a lot about sort of running or rowing or little just stories that are, are captivating. I've actually go. got, I've got born to run at home, but I haven't actually read it because it's, it's about, it's it. about a bear, like, uh, is it in Kenya or in Africa yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about yeah, barefoot yeah. running and that sort of thing? Yeah. Okay. That's I'll, right. have to, yeah, yeah. I'll have to dig into that. Yeah. Get, get onto it. It's yeah. a, it's a great story. And there's another <laughs> one, there's another one called, um, the boys in the boat, which is a, a rowing story around world war two, um, which is fascinating as well. So, um, yeah, the boys in the boat's another good one. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'll get into that, download that too. <laughs> Final final question. I really do appreciate you taking the the time, Belinda. Um, you've been uh, you've met and been around a lot of incredibly successful people. Um, is there one person that really stands out to you who has inspired you the most, and and why? Uh, I, I have been extremely lucky to be around you know just amazing people, people that some you know most people wouldn't even know. Um, but probably the the person that's had the biggest impact on me in terms of an inspiration perspective is um, Dame Quentin Bryce. Yes. And um, she was um, president of Women's Cricket Australia while I was captain um, and she didn't know much about cricket and that wasn't, that wasn't why she was, she was there. And she steered us through the integration with um, what was then the Australian Cricket Board um, uh, as Women's Cricket Australia and smart woman who picks up social um Require, like just social problems. So she's heavily involved in Indigenous affairs. She's heavily involved in domestic violence, um, trying to solve solve like big social social problems. And she does it with a smile on her face and fantastic Italian shoes and handbags and just is a wonderful, wonderful person who really has the ability to connect with people and um, then she uses her intellect to, to work with the people that create change. So fascinating woman. Uh, you know, she was governor of Queensland. She met some Indigenous communities while she was governor. She would invite the female leaders of those communities down to Government House and to stay with her for a weekend in Brisbane and, you know, just stuff like that where she actually goes well beyond the rhetoric and right to connecting with people and she's still in contact with those women today and fascinating um, wow. woman and just inspires me to really think about what's possible. Mm. Wow, that is absolutely yeah, she, fascinating. She's phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Gosh. It's like Superwoman. It's a phenomenal. And and you've had her and you and you've had her as um as a mentor throughout your throughout your life as well? Yeah, absolutely. So wow. um, she's been she's been amazing. And she came to the World Cup semifinal, the one the rain, the rain affected semifinals of the T twenty World Cup. Mm. And um you know, the way she can just walk into a room and people would come up to her and say, oh, I, I remember, you know, and she would just easily chat to any Tom, Dick or Harry. Like it was just, she's just got this um, sense of poise and grace about her, but she's got a wicked sense of humour and she's, um, you know, just so pragmatic and, you know, sensible and, and normal. It's it's phenomenal. Well, I need to meet this lady. <laughs> yeah, she's <Wow>. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uh, Belinda, it really is an honour to have had you on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You really are a gift that just keeps giving from your record-breaking playing days to now giving back to the game of cricket in, in a massive way by being such an, an amazing cricket administrator. All of us cricketers are indebted to you forever. I just can't thank you enough for giving me the time to share all of your amazing insights um, with us and we are all that much richer for digging deeper into the mind of one of the greatest cricketers of all time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. Thank you very much. It's good fun. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.